Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Mike Hobbs went to heaven a few years ago at a relatively young age, but he was a wonderful man of God and a fantastic preacher. This sermon was preached well over 30 years ago, and in it he asks the question, what is the answer in days like these? I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. Keep passing it on and on. a privilege to be here tonight, <clears throat> though I did not have the privilege of attending the school. I have a little bit of the uh, history of it in my house every day. My wife used to be Joanne Adams, and she had a lovely name for the first name. I thought the second should be changed, and we got together on that, and I did. And uh, she still, well, no, she's sweeter now than she was then, and I just wish she could have been with me, and she does too. We're homeschooling our children. Daniel's 18, Nathan will soon be 16, and Esther just turned 11. And uh, she would have liked to have been here with us in these times of sharing. A lot of memories are here for her in these grounds and across the street. And she's told me the times when the old music uh, building didn't have uh, quite the insulation that it may now have, and she'd wake up with the snow on her covers and all kind of good things. So I guess they called those the good old days. I'm not sure, but... Uh, <laughs> it is indeed a privilege to be here, and my thanks to the Lord for this wonderful time we've had of sharing together. I mentioned to some of them in the course of this week, I have to confess and plead guilty as a um, younger set minister. I'm entering my 24th year of ministry, so it's getting up there now, 15th as pastor, but uh, I used to have sort of a pet peeve, and it was those who seem to all the time be speaking of Wesley. It was almost like it's the gospel according to John Wesley rather than Jesus Christ. Now, I need to clarify that. I think of a dear old fellow who used to come to Clinton campgrounds many years ago. He since has passed away, went to heaven, and probably spent a pretty good amount of time talking to John Wesley now, I'd assume. But uh, he always carried a great big thick book under his arm. At his time, he would take that big book, and not the Bible now, but this wonderful works of Wesley, and he'd sit under one of those trees and he would peruse some of the pages as he'd done oft times before, and uh, <laughs> it was kind of interesting to hear him testify too. But anyway, uh, I'm thankful that there is a legacy and a heritage that we have. Looking across the crowd and getting the chance to meet new friends, I have the inauspicious job as being the host pastor's son at Dayton Convention. Uh, that really is a do-it job. You just uh, do it here and do it there, and so it's not. It's really a lot of lot of uh, big name for a whole lot of work, 
but it's certainly good to make faces and names come together in a special way. I felt through the course of this, this time of this week, even prior to coming here, that the Lord would have us to kind of package this thing together. I have nothing new to add about Wesley. Obviously, I'd have a hard time doing so after it was so well given to us by Brother Smith and others through this wonderful, wonderful week. But I do feel constrained to the Lord to share with us some areas of, I hope, practical truth that will help to govern us and guide us as we go out of here to put to practice the things that ought to be done. Four fellows I read about some time ago decided to go mountain climbing together. They had never done this before, as I understand. And in their getting their equipment together and heading out, they found the mountain they wanted to climb and began doing so. And they were quite a ways up when one of the four fell over the ledge some 60 feet below to a ledge that was there below. The other three panicked and waited and thought they heard breathing, and one spoke and said, Joe, are you okay? And he said, after a little bit of a pause, I, I think so, but I think I broke both my arms. And without thinking, he never thought, but he said, don't worry, Joe, we'll get you up. We'll throw a rope over and bring you up here. And that's exactly what they did. They threw a rope down over the ledge 60 feet below, and they said, now you hang on. We're going to pull you up. And and immediately began doing the work, all three tugging and sweating and grunting and groaning as they began to pull him up the ledge. Halfway up it dawned on the fellow. I thought he said both his arms are broken. If his arms are broken, how? Joe, I thought you said both your arms are broken. If, how, how are you holding on? And he said, with my teeth. I hate that story. I just hate that story. Because like you, I don't know how it ended up. <laughs> Well, we're in tough days, there's no doubt about it. And when you're in a tough day, holding hands and singing during an earthquake is of little help, is it? And uh, some advice people give is just hang in there and keep busy working harder, but that doesn't help much either when the barn's on fire, slapping a coat of paint on the other side doesn't make too much good sense. And so if the tar is flat, driving faster doesn't help a whole lot. It might uh, get you there a little quicker, but you'll have a bumpy ride in the process. What is the answer for us in days like these? Some of us are facing some problems that we never found in school. They would tell us how to handle them. Some of the keys they gave us just doesn't fit the locks that we're having to try to unlock and get into in the rooms and the hearts of individuals. We uh, are ministering to people who are profoundly influenced with sin and with vice, and they think it's all right. A young lady is attending our services now who has three, four children, and uh, they are fathered by three different men. And that's uh, in itself not necessarily unusual, except that she also lived with two men at the same time. I think they call that husband-in-law, I'm not sure. But uh, this was kind of a cozy threesome. They'd go to the store together, they'd go shopping together. She uh, made a profession of faith here some time ago and kicked the old fellow out. The ironic thing was the guy who supposes her real husband doesn't take near as good care of her as does the man that's helping to foot the bill and pay the rent, bring in the goodies and what have you. As I've talked with them and I was in the home and helped to lead her and her, her real husband to the Lord and shared with her some insights and she had had a little bit of background in the spiritual way, I was made aware of the fact in her conversation she really doesn't feel necessary this is wrong. She's justifying her sin predicated upon the fact the guy that should be my real husband is not much of a husband. He's on the road as a trucker. I don't see him until the weekend, and he's back out again. I don't know where the old guy is. This fellow at least keeps me warm and comfortable and cozy, and so therefore she justified the situation. And that's exactly the kind of crowd we're working with in this generation. 
We've sung it in this services, and while it should be sung more often to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. And I want to talk to us tonight as my theme has been given to me relative to following Jesus' example. Lord Jesus, we are profoundly aware of the fact that thou art here. Your promise has been and still is where two or three are gathered together in thy name, thou art there in the midst. We have sat under the table this week and received some tremendous bountiful uh, meat and and potatoes and the depth of real tremendous materials that shall help us in days to come, we feel, because it's God's truth and God's men who before us have trodden the pathways as we have are now trotting. And we, we have uh, been made aware of the fact that while we think this generation is rather difficult, and to some of us it might seem that way, there have been days before that are a whole lot worse than what any of us have had to face heretofore. And I ask you to help us again tonight to leave this place challenged and renewed in heart and mind and soul to be all that you'd have us to be. Thank thee for these who've assembled together tonight. You've brought the crowd together for such a time as this. And as we've already prayed, we ask you to help us tonight to speak only those things that would be profitable and pleasing to thy sight. And for the benefit of God's grace to be received and the help you're going to give us, we praise thee in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I shall share with you several passages as we work our way through the session tonight. But allow me to state by beginning, for most of us, this very week has been a rather interesting, extremely profitable, mind-stretching, maybe even mind-boggling time to be together, has it not? That's certainly true of the speaker that you have before you tonight. Whenever we wrap up all the many new approaches, or probably I could better state it, old principles to present pressing problems, we face today, then I think you'll agree with me that there is hope, and I'm glad that's true. I don't find anything in the scripture where Jesus worked with anybody but what he left them with hope. Another pet peeve of mine through the years of ministry, and that's all I've ever known, has been the wholeness way. From the time my boyish feet dangled over the front pew and I tried to outsing the guy next to me, and uh, heard about the second coming and heard about heaven and hell, and heard about what could take place in one's life if they'd let Jesus have his way, I've been profoundly made aware of the fact that we must have, we must leave people with hope. And I must confess there are times I've left churches and not had any hope. If the wall of your house could speak, if the ceiling could talk, if the floor could talk. I mean, when you got through, it's like, I haven't got a prayer of a chance. Why try? There's no use even trying to grunt. I can't make it. I might as well cash in the chips now. Oh, but sir, there is hope because where Jesus is, tis heaven there. And I rather think if we would have the, the opportunity right here, and we don't have, of course, but if we did, and we could start to my left and work back across the crowd and all the way through to the, my right, end up over here, we'd have some profoundly interesting testimonies where you've come from and where you are today because of God's grace. I don't want ever to forget the fact that just because I haven't known what it's like to smoke and to drink and to carouse, and I'm grateful for that heritage, and I too am trying to pass on to my three children that they too do not need to go into the ways of sin and then trust to, to hope to come out of that uh, and learn a better way, but that God can keep them from some of those things and keep them from troubles down the way, and that's a message we need to hear. Some time ago it came across to me kind of strongly, I don't have much of a testimony. 
I hear these fellows who come off of drugs and here's someone that's lived with all kind of women and here's someone that's beat this one and kicked that one and busted his nose and broke this other guy's arm. And I mean, really some gory stories, you know, really terrible thing. He drunk until he couldn't stand up and they carried him out. And I, never, I, I can't testify about those things that God brought me from relative to that. But the more I begin to think about that, I got to thinking, I sure do have a testimony. Hallelujah, I have a testimony. Not because I'm a do-gooder. Oh, no, no. I, I had a nature inside of me. I came from pretty unique stock. <laughs> you know my mother and father. I'm a mix of both of them, and so that's really a volatile situation. But uh, I, I have a wonderful testimony that Jesus Christ is sufficient to save a person inside the parsonage, if you will, and keep them going on the ways of truth and righteousness. Glory be to God. There is, however, grave concern I share tonight with you. I think it may have been felt in the songwriter who penned the words in recent song, I'm so tired of being stirred, but not being changed. We've sat in camp meetings and conventions and revivals and chapel services and missions conferences over and over again and again. We've walked away, and I'm sure maybe you, like myself, have said, I don't believe I'll ever be the same. And I meant it, and you meant it, and we really did mean it, didn't we, when we said it, only to sometimes fall so quickly back into the long, self-dug rut that so long had been a part of our life and that we had committed ourselves to. It's my cry for both myself and you that the blessed Holy Spirit will deeply rivet in our hearts the awareness that all we can do, must do, and will do as we leave the confines of this assembly tonight will be brought about by a fresh anointing of the divine presence of the Holy Ghost in a special way. I think a quick reminder of just what we're, we're here for and what it's all about relative to this matter of the ambassadors is well in order. 2 Corinthians, for example, chapter 6 makes mention of the fact in verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. He didn't say to the preacher, now preacher, you are an ambassador, or to the laity, laity, you are, but to all of us who name the name of Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Some time ago, a preacher friend of mine was in a political situation, and as he was uh, rubbing shoulders and talking to some of the big boys, he got to talking to some, of, some people who had been involved in ambassadorship for our country, and he rather dropped a kind of a question mark, and his mind had been thinking on similar terms of this same scripture. And he said, you know, what, uh, what's, uh, what's the qualification for an ambassador? What's, what constitutes an ambassador? And they fell right into the trap and gave him some excellent situations. And some things I share with you, they share with him. They said to him, for, qual for qualifications, if you were to be an ambassador, number one, you must be a citizen of that country. I like that very, very well. I think that has a spiritual connotation. We cannot, we cannot give what we do not possess. And so oftentimes as a parent, as well as you who are parents know, many things are caught rather than taught. I've had a lot of fun with this as I've talked with people in uh, conferences and what have you with family t t ties and situations. How often have you uh, traveled down the highway and someone pulled out in front of you and for once you bit your tongue and didn't say whatever you normally would say and you were kind of priding yourself, I'm finally conquering, praise the Lord. Only to have in the back seat piping up, get out of the road, stupid! 
And you thought, where in the world did that come from? Only to be reminded that they'd heard it from you several times heretofore before they, that you'd expressed that. And so some things are caught rather than taught. And I think the same thing is here. It's going to be hard for us to take home and bear the news of all the wonderful things we've experienced together this week relative to what God can do through us as he did through Mr. Wesley. If we, first of all, don't have our own hearts strangely warm and strangely touched in a wonderful way. So an ambassador must be a citizen of that country and that's he has to be legally a part of it if you will. And secondly, he always has a personal acquaintance with the king or ruler of that country and I like that very, very well. Oh, hallelujah, yes, tis heaven, we said a while ago. And it's heaven to know my sins forgiven. And on that grounds I can come to him as a father and son relationship. I could not always go to my father with open hand and open mind and raised head. There were times I did things I should not have done and I wanted to hide. I wanted to run and, and to take cover. I, my father was one of those who when he said what he said, he meant what he said. I tried to sing him out of it. I tried to talk him out of it. I tried to pat him on the shoulder and make him feel nice about it. And he would drive the car as we headed home and says, that sounds nice, but you're still going to get it when you get home. Oh, that kind of does horrible things to your song, you know, what you're trying to thing, but I knew he loved me, and I've often said it, and I still say it, I would not walk across the street to hear him today, perhaps, if it were not the fact that he bore it home even greater than what he was trying to say in the pulpit. That's my great concern together tonight. I'm concerned for all of us that we do not miss the, 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 the very mission field at our own fingertips in our own homes while we're trying to help the homeless and trying to help the bereaved and the sorrowing and the lost and the brokenhearted and the broken down. If some Somehow we do not help in our own passages to rear a new generation who are God-fearing and God-possessed and are honest and open and transparent and who will be, who will be open in God's hand. And I'm afraid we're going to find more problems than we can imagine from what we've even heard in this conference because we're not seeing it lived in the own confines of our own homes. Third, he said, he must understand the purposes and the spirit of his homeland. I think among other things, we'd agree that Jesus wants us to be witnesses. We'd have some difficulties with that. How do we do it? Which way do we go about it? Which, how do we follow in the train of visiting and, and witnessing? Does that mean we all go down here to the, to the brothel and to the, the bad section of the community and walk into the bars and uh, talk to those fellows? Uh, some of us have done that. Uh, but that doesn't mean everybody has to do it, nor can they do that. But all of us must be witnesses by our lives, by our deportment, by the manifestation that we we have something more in positive than just negative and that in your neighborhood you're noted as someone more than just you don't have a television or that you don't smoke or drink or carouse but that there's a positive something that you do have that will radically transform the heart and life and soul of everyone who will follow the same Jesus Christ you're serving. Glory be to God. Then fourthly, he must have an allegiance to his homeland. That's beyond question. I think that's very good. There is responsibility you see there that has to come. That means his allegiance is first of all to Jesus Christ. My hope must be built on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but a holy lean on Jesus' name. I have my wonderful parents and I have some other excellent friends, but there are times none of them can help me. I have a wonderful wife and I have some precious children and they love the Lord, but sometimes none of them can help me. I have to go back to Jesus Christ and ask his direction and ask his help and tell him 
how much I must have him. We've got to have that, sir, if we're to be effective in this day and this hour. Then there's the responsibility of an ambassador as they continue their conversation. He said the responsibility of representing the best interest of his homeland under all circumstances. I think that's pretty good. That means that you don't tell about the flaws in your country. You don't go over there and show them pictures of rioters and, uh, and people who are burning the flag. And No, 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 no. You put out the best. Isn't it deplorable that oftentimes the world hears about all of our dirty laundry and all of our sorrowing things and have this church that split and splintered and fell apart and over some of the real, real unique areas about the widths of ties and other things of that sort, you know, real, real problematic things, of course. But the battle is that the world looks upon this and they're really hungry. Now, I found this to be true, but they don't see the manifestation of true divine love. And there again is we need a fresh relationship with him. And then also the responsibility was to assist others homeland citizens that he finds in his foreign country. I think that's very good. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. But if you're going to do good to anybody, do good especially to those of the household of faith, Galatians chapter 6 has reference to. And so we need to, we need to bolster each other up. And these times of being together give us that opportunity, do they not? Then he went on to talk about the fact to win others to, to the love of the king. And there's, a, there's evangelism there. But there's another stage, and that's the deportment of the ambassador that means his conduct in the sense that the, there was dressing in such a way as to honor his king and his country he wasn't sloppy and he wasn't careless and uh, he didn't have khaki shorts and tattoos on his arms and uh, his hair disheveled and wearing sandals and you don't find an ambassador in the midst of a crowd when people are looking on for this grand fellow that that's not who you're looking for whenever they would see him they'd say oh hold it who is this why that's that's the ambassador from the United States. No, 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 no. That, that can't be him. I mean, you, this guy right here, uh, that's what they said. Well, obviously you get the message. If we're, to, if we're to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, it means we have to properly dress in the way that would please our king and honoring him. And then in his department, he's to be a diplomat. I think that's very good. It's tragic, but I've run into people in my lifetime who feel like a fellow who stays on in his church very many years, something's got to be wrong with him. He's either a palaverer, he's a, he is a henpecked kind of preacher, he gives in to the whimsies of everybody, he can't possibly hold them together that long. I mean, three, four years at the longest, and you've got to hit the road, buddy. You can't make it longer than that. But there is something about diplomacy. Uh, the scripture did say, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. I, I like that. Don't, don't you? That means as much as we can, let's make for peace. I don't know where it came from, but it's become part of my nature. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to see my brother falling down. And nor do I want to kick more sand in his face when he's fallen down, if indeed he has fallen down. I heard of someone state some time ago, and I like so well what they said. He said, I was supposed to go to a meeting somewhere, and uh, as uh, had been scheduled for quite some time, and I understood the man whom I had scheduled the meeting with hadn't moved on, and therefore I thought, well, I'll not be going. But the new pastor called and said, you've got to come. We've got, we've got advertisements out, and we have bulletins out. You've just got to come. So he said, against my better judgment, I went, I went to the meeting. And the new pastor picked him up at the airport, and they, in their conversation along the way, heading back to the parsonage, he said, oh, by the way, uh, did you hear about, and he named the former pastor's name, what happened to him? No, no, he said, I haven't. Well, he said, I was afraid you might not have, and so I wanted to give you the straight dope. I wanted to tell you straight from the, the shoulder what had taken place. No, he said, I, I really don't want to hear. But he said, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Well, he said, I, I don't want to hear the truth. 
you don't want to know I don't know he said he's never called me about a situation and I have no reason because he's not here to defend or even talk about the situations I really wouldn't rather hear about that he said well I was there in that series of meetings uh, some of the people from the church came to him and said oh did our new pastor talk to you about our former pastor no he said he hasn't well they said we knew it was a little sticky situation and we kind of thought maybe maybe we ought to let you know why he's not here why we had to get rid of him. no he said I, I don't want to hear and they said about the same thing. Well, we're just going to tell you the, the, the facts. I don't want to hear the facts. I mean, we're just going to tell you the truth. Well, I don't want to hear the truth. I mean, he hasn't called me about anything. I have no reason to call him. This man said, just yesterday I received a letter from that former pastor. And he wrote and said, thank you for being my friend. You're probably the only true friend I have in this earth apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for not believing the report and being my friend. And he said, if that man had talked with me and asked me, and I would have been glad to have helped if there was some reason for me. But he said, I, I would not have, uh, I would have been happy to have participated. But he never said a thing about it. I was only getting one-sided viewpoint. I wasn't there at the scene of the battle. And I like what he said. I have so long through the course of my lifetime been very, very troubled and perplexed by these who in testimony service hang out the dirty laundry. Oftentimes, there's a mother I remember as she would testify, pray for me that I'll have love for my son. And the son was seated there in the service that very night. Oh, he was adopted, and he really felt like he was wanted. Oh, he really just couldn't get over how much they loved him, how much they just couldn't wait to have him come home from school. When more than once she would request prayer, I'm having a hard time loving David. Please pray for me that I'll love David. I, I was just a small lad at that time, but it bugged me then. It bugs me now. As I think about it, it should not have been. Oh, I should go ahead to add to you, he was in our wedding, that is David. Oh, but he's not anywhere close to the church today. He's had several different children out of wedlock by several different women in the city of Dayton, Ohio. Now, obviously David made a choice and he had a will in the matter, but I kind of think the way was paved by a carelessness of a mother's part who did not really love him and even by her testimony or her her request was exhibiting the fact I still don't love him pray for me that I will love him although she was griped about the fact that she even had to request prayer for that kind of a thing it came across loud and clear a little boy was asked why it was that he'd crossed the street and passed this church and crossed some other streets and passed another church and down the street to another church he'd passed and crossed some more streets and finally he would get to the church where he attended. Why do you pass so many churches to get to that one way over there, Sonny? And the lad spoke up and he said, well, he said, because they love a fellow over there, I guess. That's why I go down there. We can't get around the, the fact that people know if we love them. That's what brought people to Jesus. I'm amazed how oftentimes Jesus did not did not jump on their case. The classic illustration is the woman at the well. There was a process by which he brought her out for her own confession that she was not married as she should be and that she'd had a whole bunch of husbands that were not hers and that after a while, she, the more she talked, she, she even got so excited she told a lie. She said, come and see a man that told me everything I've ever... Now, he didn't tell her everything she'd ever done wrong, but she kind of felt like he did. It was like looking through a piece of transparency here. I, he knows me. He actually does. But there was something in the heart of Jesus Christ that brought those people to him that even though they would walk away without having accomplished what he would ask them to do, they loved him and they knew he loved them. I wonder if the people we're around know that very fact in the 
the process. Oh, may the Lord help us in the cause of all of this matter. I hasten on. First John chapter 4 and verse 17, I think, would be the cap sheet of uh, what this is all inspiring tonight relative to the topic. The latter part of that verse says in simply uh, nine little simple words, these, this, this phrase, As he is, so are we in this world. It's amazing that the profundity of simplicity that Christ often mentioned in the course of the scripture, is it not? As he is, there's the plan. That's a transformed life. We heard wonderfully last night given to us in part of the message about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful he come. The writer well put it, all the love that drew salvation's plan, all the grace that brought it down to man, all the mighty gulf that God has spanned at Calvary. Thank God for Calvary. But there's a transformed life but also a triumphant life. And all through the course of Jesus' life, there's victory after victory after victory. And whenever he battled the devil, it wasn't so he was trying to win. Oh, no. He didn't have his arm, as it were, behind him. No, he already had won the battle, bless the Lord. And by the scripture, he put him back down again. It is written, the very same thing that I have to encourage me and the very same thing that's possible to encourage you is the written word of God. I can stand upon it. I can, I can rest my whole life upon it. I can raise my family by it. I can be a good husband by it. I can even be a good preacher occasionally by it, by the grace and the help of God. Hallelujah. But I see also as he is the plan, I move on to the pledge. So are we. I think again of the transformed life. And in the, in the process, if we have not been transformed, I say again, it's hard to pass on what we do not possess. Isn't it interesting how that we can learn this thing through rote memory and through logistics so well that we act it out without any real feeling inside of our heart? And, and even worse, because of what we're seeing in the scenario of sinful practice is that they blatantly and for a long while have been committing these things while still going on with, with uh, heart and mind and voice and triumphant call, clarion call of the Scripture and tears to go along with it and an impassioned message with it. But all the while they were sinning in the process. Sad as it is that we can learn this thing and, and so mechanical that it doesn't have a heart process within us. It's interesting, again, how companies take inventory every so often. Once a year, sometimes there have been no others who have done it, in some cases, once a month. And the purpose is to see where they are as well as where they should be. I think it does as good as husbands and wives to take inventory. I think it does as good as parents to take inventory. Now, I want to, I want to uh, brace you just a bit here. Be prepared to receive what you're not really thinking you're going to get. Some weeks ago, I handed a list of questions to my three children. And in essence, it was asking them what they thought about their dad and, and uh, the kind of music they liked and the kind of friends, uh, what was their, who was their favorite friend and, uh, and several things. I was really trying to get an insight to, from, from them back to me. And I said, I want an honest answer, no matter how painful it is. <laughs> it took them two days to answer that thing. Now, it wasn't that many questions, just one page of questions. But they slaved over top of this thing. You know what the problem was? Down to that one where it says something about dad. And I told them to be honest. And they were honest. Oh, were they honest? <laughs> now, I, uh, I could have threw a curve right there and put up a defensive wall. Let me tell you why I took that stand. And I'd have blown it right out of the water, right fast. <laughs> Did you ever have that problem? No one here has that problem. That's good. But sometimes people have problems like that. 
they, they'll say outwardly, if I've done anything wrong, let me know. And so you finally go to them to let them know, and you shouldn't have let them know. And they let you know you shouldn't let them know. You ever have that problem? <laughs> Some weeks ago, a dear lady came to make a confession. No, she, she came to make a declaration, but it was in the form of a confession, or a supposedly confession. And she declared to us how off base we were. And she proceeded to ream my wife and I out because of some things we supposedly weren't doing what she thought we should be doing. And uh, I thanked her for coming. But it did give me an opportunity, and I don't think I was uh, coming back at her. It, it afforded the opportunity. I had been needing to talk to her about several things myself. <laughs> I wish I could tell you she was as receptive, received as I was, but she wasn't. In fact, they're not even coming to our church anymore. It's, it's an interesting factor there. But I, told, I took what they said. And I painstakingly looked it over and had to admit what they were saying was true. Some years ago, a missionary went to India and he said there were three basic things after he was there for a while that came out of his missionary tour. The first of all, they, what they said, it was, it's not, uh, not true. In other words, what you're saying to us about this Christ, it's not true. We have our gods and we have our things rewards. It's not true. And he said we'd work our way over top of that and we'd present the gospel. But then there was another crowd that came along and they'd say it's not new. I mean, we've heard this before, and, but we've decided to go back to our gods and we're worshiping them. But he said the third was even more difficult to swallow and harder to get over when they said it's not you. It's not you in the sense that this really is not what you're characterizing. You're speaking to us, but it's not a part of your own heart. And I wonder oftentimes as we walk away, having heard the truths of God's word, only to see it not really fulfilled in our lives. But then there's the, pl the place in this world. That's where God wants us to live, this open before a transparent world that's watching. How can we become a person who knows where they're going? I quickly pass to you some thoughts that I think is worthy of our, of our consideration. First of all, by the development of, of deep personal convictions. I think a leader is a person with a cause in a generation that has no cause. But this really can work out to our advantage. Churches are all too oftentimes run by pastors who are operators of clubs rather than arousers of convictions. They're running a program rather than building into the life of people. And that is not the way to develop convictions. You and I only develop a set of beliefs, and beliefs will never get the job done. What I've heard this week, I can believe it to be true, but unless my heart is moved and strangely warmed, it will not be a conviction with me that we must do something in our community. Now, you must do it, and I can say, boy, you need some real help here in Kansas City. Oh, great, big, huge area. We've only got 15,000 people in Noblesville, and so our job is not near. Oh, it's just as intense, just as immense, just as, just as large. We don't have the scope in terms of numbers numerically, but we have the problem spiritually, and that's where we come back to having it in our hearts. May I suggest three things that, as, that are consistently related here? In this matter of developing deep personal convictions, first of all, consistent personal Bible study. Psalms 119, 97 through 105 gives us to talk about that area. Ending up with, thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against God. There's never been a substitute brought to pass. No course, no training, no technique, no discipleship as, uh, operation will begin to substitute that which has to come through some personal Bible study ourselves. And I want to I confess to you, that's not as easy as it sounds. In the day of the busies, when we're hurrying here and we're hurrying, and it's all good stuff. 
are all good things. But we can be so demotivated by the good things and leaving out the better things and we have a raspy heart and a cold spirit and a cold soul and not be able to affect a world that's hungry and needing some fire and warmth themselves. You've got to feel his heart. You've got to feel your mind with his. No wonder he said in the Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I cannot follow in his direction if I don't know his mind. And we'll never come to grips with what we ought to do and how we ought to live unless there's the matter of the consistent personal Bible study. And I secondly move on to say there ought to be consistent time for meditation. That's not a luxury, that's a necessity. Meditating, time to think. And that's, not, that's going to be more difficult than you and I can think about in the process of our life. Time to, to, to put this all together in the sense of what God wants us to do. And third, there's the matter of consistent guidance. I like that in John 21 and 21, Peter's worried about what's John going to do or what about him. And the Lord says, hey, don't worry about him. You take it easy. Take care of yourself. You've got only one person to take care of, and that's number one. That's you. And I like that. I, I have a church that's uh, interesting, and uh, so do you. We've got some problems, I'm sure, uh, that's interesting. And you could say, yep, so do I, and we can share with each other And who has the most unique problems. I'm not quite as bad as the fellow who was talking to the other guy, and he said, how you doing? Well, he said, I'm trying to run a four-ulcer church on two ulcers. <laughs> I hope you don't have that kind of malady equating your heart and your life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. But did you notice what it did not say? It didn't say don't use it. It said don't lean on it. Trust in the Lord and lean not into your own understanding. Use it, yes, but don't lean on it. Lean upon Him. Romans chapter 14 and verse 5. I don't, uh, let me just give you a little, little uh, what I mean here type of thing. I know that Mondays for me, basically, it's not going to be a blue Monday, but it's going to be a downer primarily. Not always, but generally speaking. I have, I have gotten out all kind of emotional BTUs on Sunday. I have, I have fairly salivated. I have frothed at the mouth. I have kicked and punched and, and beat and, and tried to rattle that dead the head over here and tried to shake loose this one who's not going to shake loose very easily and a lot of other things, you know. And you've poured out all kind of emotion on kind of emotion. Then comes Monday. Yo, and I want to tell you, if you've ever had the urge to quit, it probably came on Monday. Is that right? Oh, yeah. A lot of you thought, boy, I'll never do it again. But then Tuesday came, and I thought, you know, I'd sure like to try it one more time. And come Wednesday, I think I can do it again. By Thursday, I know I can do it again. Friday, let's go do it again. And then comes Sunday, and then you're back to Monday. But the cycles of life are rather interesting. Study yourself. Know your weaknesses. Know your strengths. And that's not a luxury again. That's a necessity if we're to be a stabilized individual. There's no pattern or some place where you can go and purchase one. You'd have to ask yourself, what am I about to do? Will it help me to better accomplish my goals for the future? And if not, then I'll probably not be doing it. Number three, you become a person who knows where you're going by the subordination of all your life under your goal. A leader cannot do everything, even good things. I came up in a family, and I have the same malady that struck me. I have a hard time saying no to some good things. I mean, here's family night, but here's someone calls and says, we've got to have you for the rally. We, we just desperately need you. Can you come and preach for us? But if you have this in mind of what the priority is of the most important thing, then you have to say no. Well, that's not very spiritual. Oh, yes, but it's very, it's very eternal. I've already committed myself to my family. And by me saying, well, family, you don't really count. I mean, this is, may I just stop to say something here? 
I'm in the minority sometimes, but that's fine. There are some of the dear precious brethren of the past, some of which have already gone on to their rewards, who espoused the fact in years past that your job and mine as ministers was to go God's way, and no matter what that meant to do, whether it's travels, evangelist, or whatever, and if our family's going to mind God, they'd better follow through, or else they're going to have to pay the penalty for it. That sounded so spiritual. It really did. But I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I'll tell you why I don't buy it. I have had to counsel with a lot of evangelists and preachers' children. I've been in camps with them. I've seen them in conventions. I've seen them in wherever. And they're bitter as gall. They don't want to hear a thing about it. And they'll tell you, it's the ministry that robbed me of my dad or my mom or my parents. Thinking of a couple tonight. In fact, dear lady, some friends of ours who used to be an evangelist, oftentimes she would get on to my wife She'd say, oh, my, you ought to be using that, that, that uh, degree you've got, and, and, and you ought to be able to you know, go to school to teach. And she said, I really should have told her, dear sister, it's really because of you that's helped me not to do so. Out of the three children they have, one of them's an insane asylum, the second one's a prostitute, the third married a homosexual. And they've traveled from camp to camp. I mean, these were spiritual people. You can never, you would never follow them for their standard. You never follow them for their lifestyle. They were the, they were the mildly used of God in camp after camp and revival after revival across the country. But here's a whole generation of children who are down the slats. I, I want to tell you that that grips my heart. It really does. I am concerned about the homeless. I am concerned about the one out there. We kept an alcoholic who'd gotten saved in our home for 10 weeks and worked with him in West Virginia. I worked with the people who were down and out. We've, we work with people who have come from incest cases. I don't know how you get away from it if you're going to reach the world in this generation. But, sir, we must not lose what we have at our own fingertips in the process of trying to help others down the way. Oh, may the Lord stamp it upon my own heart afresh and again anew tonight. And then... You become a person who knows where you're going by working smarter, not harder. The grass has been lovely cut out here. I'm sure the person who did it did not use some clippers. Now, you can do it that way. I mean, you can take a lot of time. You can work up a lot of strong muscle. My, my second son's got a pretty strong inset arm here. He milks the goat every day. We've got two goats. And we've got four collies and some kitty cats and all this on the farm we're renting. And, and, and so Nathan, he, he does a pretty good job milking. He's a pretty stout, pretty stout chap. And uh, he, uh, he, he can pretty, he loves to arm wrestle his brother now because he can finally win. <laughs> Took a little while to get there, but he can finally beat him. <laughs> but uh, I can tell the boys, now boys, I want you to go out here and cut the grass today. And they, it takes them four and a half hours to do that. Uh, but I want you to do it a little different. I want you to take those clippers out there and, and cut it nice. Now, they could do it. It'd take them more than four and a half hours, but they could do it that way. But that's working harder, not smarter. And the thing about in the ministry, all the good stuff we've heard, sometimes the temptation is to go home and put it all into practice right now. Guess what our people do? You remember when you was having your first child or you had your first child, or maybe you can remember now your first grandchild, and you finally started getting that stuff out of the bottle or out of the can or jar, like beets or carrots or whatever, and you even put a little salt in there, it tasted bad to you. You thought, ah, so you kind of made it taste kind of nice. And so you were trying to get this spinach down that child. Remember the game you played? One was called Airplane. Here comes the airplane. Ah! And you put it inside and you just smiled. I got it in. And while you were smiling, all over you, all over the front of your dress. Remember that time? You really thought you put it across, didn't you? 
Oh, man, sometimes that's exactly what happens to some of us. Some years ago, we were in a convention in the, down the south. A bunch of us fellows. Brother Heron was one of the speakers that year. He got up in his own inimitable way, and he said, Fellas, there's going to be times when you get up in your pulpits that you feel like really giving it to them today. So today I'd advise you that that's probably the day you should change your message totally to the opposite and give them what you think they don't need rather than what you think they do need. And he wasn't not taken away from the fact of necessity of strong things to be preached, but here's the love aspect again. Jesus never chided the disciples except for the fact of their unbelief. They had a hard time grasping hold of some truths like I have and like you perhaps have as well but he worked with them to see what they were to become. Isn't that encouraging? Not many of us would stand up and say, boy, I want to tell you I'm exactly everything God wants me to be. No, we, we wouldn't say that tonight, but it's encouraging to know we can walk out of here with hope in our hearts, put into practice the goals he wants us to have. This and I'm through. In the midst of all of this matter, there's something that needs to be cemented to our minds, and that's one word that could kind of put all this together, and that's commitment. 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verses 20 and 21, bear what we want to close with and sharing tonight. 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 20 and 21, And thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. I like that. Oh, hallelujah. We'll not move one peg closer to what we ought to be unless this is bedrock within us and that's a matter of commitment. Until the person's committed, there's a hesitancy to draw back. But the very moment he or she commits themselves definitely, that it's amazing to see how God moves in. And a whole series of events will begin to erupt. All manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and persons and miracles begin to come our way that we would never have dreamed to have come our way. And all of this because we became people that were committed. A leader is known by three things. He's known by his character, and that is really what he really is deep in his heart. Second, he's known by his contri contribution, and that's simply what he gives, what he what he lends and what he extends of himself. And third, a leader is known by his commitment. That's what he lives for. That's what he gives his life for. That's what he stays awake at night thinking about and dreaming and planning and praying for. And I'd like to ask us four questions about this matter of commitment in closing tonight. First of all, what is commitment? I think I could sit, say it in a simple form like this. It's that fire that keeps us burning. It's that energy that keeps us going. It's not just giving more, it's giving all. It's not that pastor who's looking down the road to a better conference meeting or a better church or a better location or a better pay or that Sunday school teacher that says, I think I need to get out of here because, oh my, these rowdy young'uns are getting on my nerves and I think I need a break. But they're looking to Jesus at a commitment of fresh to say, oh God, I want to be, yea, I will be the pastor or the teacher or the leader or the father or the parent that's pleasing to you. I'm committing everything I've got to this matter to be all that you'd want me to be. Commitment is that layman who will stick by the church regardless of the problems and pressures that are going on inside that church. It's continuing to pray and to continue to encourage and give all that they have. Second, why is commitment needed? 
I think it's because it's the only thing that's left apart from the grace of God that's going to change this world. You'll pardon me, I'm in an institution of higher learning in a sense, and I don't mean to disabuse the minds of the teachers, but I don't believe education is going to change the world. Nor is genius going to change the world. Nor is talent going to change the world. It's going to have to be character, but character bedrocked in commitment. And the world has always been won and still will be won by men and women who are committed to what they're doing. That's the whole thing of Wesley. That's what happened in his mind and heart. It wasn't that he was such a tremendous man, though he was, but there was a commitment in his heart, his life, his mind that burned in him continually. I've got to do this. It's in my heart. I've got to go this way. Oh, sir, is that in your heart tonight that a fresh and a new, a mighty outpouring of the presence of God that will touch your heart and touch your lips and touch your mind and cause you to be committed as you ought to be, then I'm satisfied we're going to hear in a few days, a few weeks, a few months of some changed churches because of some changed pastors who are going back to be the change, changers of the world. It'll change the world. It'll change the church. It'll change even your church. It can help the school. It'll keep you from discouragement. It'll keep you from moodiness. Someone as well said moodiness is self-pity and self-pity is carnality and carnality is sin therefore moodiness is sin I never said that someone else said that but it's a pretty good quote and I pass it on to you third what does commitment cost we've already said it in a way and Jesus epitomized this in that of, he said I always do that of my father's will it's a changed life but can I also inject here it's going to also cost loneliness I'm sure if Mr. Wesley could talk to us, he would tell us there were a lot of times he was lonely on the back of that horse as he was going from place to place and speaking engagement to speaking engagement. There's only a certain amount of strength physically one has to do any kind of job. And when you have more put on top of you, that's where the stress level can just come. I could take a, uh, some little tuner tonight on this piano and I could start working up in a tightening, tightening, tightening position. And we hear it getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher the pitch until finally it breaks. Why? Because the strain of that strain can only stand so much stress. And when it doesn't, when it goes beyond that is when it breaks. And that's what happens to so many of our people who have too much on top of them and do not commit it to Jesus Christ. They're committed sometimes to the wrong things. Then they have nervous breakdowns and they have problems in their home and they have children who go on drugs and on and on it goes. So here's a matter of fresh commitment, a changed life and loneliness for its commitment that proves to be the dividing line. Most of the great men that have helped to move the world have been lonely men. But also, I must add that it's going to cost you having more faith in God, faith for the funds that's needed, faith for the future, faith to lead the family, faith to see the church and school go on. It's going to mean hard work. It's going to mean criticism from your friends, and that hurts. I don't mind so much of my enemies. I don't mind so much of those people out there who don't understand God's grace. But when my buddy, my counterpart, my confidant, my friend, my co-worker, he, he begins to lay some fingers of accusation, that hurts deeply. But I must not soar over. I must not let infection set in there of bitterness because I'll damage the cause of Christ in the process of my ministry. Finally, when is commitment achieved? When is commitment achieved? When you first of all die to self, there has to be a crucifixion before there can be a resurrection. But I must say there's more here than just dying to self. It's saying that last and final and positive, yes, I'll say yes to your will, to your way. Yes, Lord, I will obey. 
The negative side of commitment is dying to self. The positive side is doing it. It may mean a new commitment to your people, pastors, as you go back. I have some things I want to talk to my people about. But it's first of all from the pastor's standpoint. Not at them, but to them. And I think the same thing as a husband. Oh, I try to be a loving husband. I don't always succeed. I've tried in the past uh, daily to tell my wife I love her and sometimes to show it in a different way. I haven't always succeeded. I've tried to be a good father. I haven't been the best. I thank the Lord for his help in the midst of the chaos and confusion to this point. The children are serving the Lord and they're faithful. And the other night, our daughter called her mother in the room and she was weeping and she said, oh, mother, I've just been thinking, I love Jesus so much. I love him so much. And I want him to come so much. And her mother felt with her. She cried too. And I heard about it, and I cried with them to know what a blessed situation that was because they love Jesus. God was in their heart, but there's commitment there. I cannot lead my people farther than I've gone myself. I cannot direct them where I haven't gone. That's where the intercession comes in in my own behalf. And then finally, the only way we're going to have, I feel, as I've often said, the revival, the moving of God's Spirit in our churches, home or in our hearts that we want to see, it has got to come in the home where the father and the mother take seriously God's mandate to be the kind of people that will be committed like Jesus was when he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Allow them to come unto me and forbid them not. Make it possible that they can come by your life, by your liberty, and by the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Are you hungry for this matter of commitment? Do you want that kind of relationship heart. I do, afresh and new. Let's stand together tonight. Amen. Amen. Praise God. It's wonderful to have the joy of Jesus in our hearts. I want to go back as a committed individual to have heard these truths, but put it into practice. Christ the Lord is able to take us through. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.